The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And this morning we're going to take another look at this uh, great passage where the Lord Jesus in the night before he was betrayed to be crucified or on that night he was to be betrayed, that he gave the church this great memorial of his death. And the death of Christ was, of course, pivotal in the history of the world. And it's so important that God was not content just to leave us with the words of preachers to explain what his death was about and to have a memorial of it. But Christ has also given us a picture, a a visualization of what he did in dying on the cross. And that visualization is the Lord's Supper and ordinance that he's given to the church. Now, last week we noted that the church only has two ordinances. There are only two pictures of the spiritual that are given in religious ritual, and that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now concerning the death of Christ, though, God did not say that I want you to make a statue of Jesus. I want you to place a crucifix in the church, and thereby you will remember what I have done for you. And the Lord didn't say for us that, well, I want you to put an image of Mary in the, in the church and then you can look to her and you can remember that she gave me up and that uh, I died and you can thank Mary for that as some people would tell you that you need to do. So he said, don't remember me by that. And neither did the Lord say, well, here's the way that I want you to remember me, that I want you to put a fish on your car, and by that you'll know that I am the Lord God and I'm the one who died for your sins. No, the way that God said that we are to memorialize the death of Jesus Christ is in this one thing, and that is in the observance of the Lord's Supper. Now, if you'll stop and think about that for a moment, The Lord didn't give us a plan of worship for how we are to structure our church services. We don't have any details in the scripture that uh, tell us to recite a liturgy. There's nothing in the scripture that says that, well, you need to have a plan for your song service and you sing this particular song at this place and you sing this song at another place and you put a prayer in here and you put special music in here. Oh, the Lord has not given us any kind of a plan like that for his worship service. So the Bible doesn't contain any specific plans for worship but one, and that's the Lord's Supper. The only act of worship that we have in the Bible that has a set of instructions is the Lord's Supper. And those instructions are given here in this text. And you'll notice that when we partake of the Supper, we follow these instructions. Now, the Apostle Paul did the same when he was teaching the church at Corinth. He broke bread. He distributed the bread. They gave thanks for it. They gave thanks for the cup, and they encouraged everyone to partake. And that is what we do. And we even end the service in the same way that they did. We end it with a hymn before we go home. So we do have a pattern to follow, and we observe the Lord's Supper by following this instruction of worship. Now, let's notice in this text what Jesus did and what he tells us to do. If you'll stand one more time for the reading of God's Word, let's look at Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 26 and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And as they were eating, 
Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. Bless us as we listen to your word today and help us to learn what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. If you'll allow me to make just a, a brief comment before I begin this sermon, I'll tell you that as I was studying for this message, I read quite a bit of information by some really great commentators. But there was one that I was reading after that particularly caught my attention, and it was with a comment that he made about worship. And he said that the Lord gave specific instructions for this worship, and the commentator was very adamant that we should do this exactly in the way that the Lord commanded. And just as I have done, he also mentioned other things, or he mentioned baptism, that uh, baptism is the only other ordinance that we have for the church, and he talked about how important that was. But then he said, he made a comment, he said that baptism, real baptism in the scripture is to be immersed, or baptism is immersion, that's the biblical way. But then he followed that up with this statement, I don't think the mode is significant. So I thought that it was really quite inconsistent that he would insist upon taking the supper according to the Bible's instructions, but when it came to the subject of baptism, it was not important to follow the more obvious instructions that God has given. And so what he was saying, that it's not really all that important. But actually both of these are very important, and we don't have any right to change the scriptures according, or change what the scripture says just according to our whims. And that even includes making the Lord's Supper a mystical thing, as we'll soon see. Now, returning to our subject today of the First Supper, in the last message we noticed the transformation of Passover. Now, Passover was the occasion for the disciples to meet and to eat with Jesus. He was going to be crucified as the last Passover lamb, and so this supper began on this night as the last supper. It was the last occasion to celebrate Passover because after this night, there was never going to be needed another Passover. Passover was observed because of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Israel was delivered from the bondage of Egypt, which is a type of sin. It's a type of the old way of life. And the Passover lamb was the means of the deliverance from that life of bondage that they lived in Egypt. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was the last Passover lamb. There were no other lambs that need to be killed uh, as a sacrifice because he was the final sacrifice that forever delivers us from the bondage of our sins. So on the night of this Passover, as it continued, Jesus changed it and he transformed it and gave the disciples the first Lord's Supper. And now after these many years, we still partake of these same symbols that they did so many years ago when Christ changed the Passover. 
Now today, when a, when a Jewish family continues Passover, they're actually committing an act of blasphemy against Jesus Christ. Now I know that sounds harsh, but there really is any other way that I can say it according to the word of God. Upon the authority of God's word, Jesus said that is blasphemy against me because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And at the Jewish Passover, what they say is no... He's not the way. We're still waiting on the Messiah to come. But the scriptures do plainly say that Jesus is the only way. That he is our Passover. That he is the Messiah who came to die for the sins of the world. And you see it outside on that sign as I mentioned last week as you enter the door. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, if Jesus is anything, he is exclusive. He is intolerant of any other religions and of any other ways. There is only one way, and that way is him. And so Jesus transformed the supper, the last supper, into the first supper, and now it's Christian. It's not Jewish, or at least, at least it's not Jewish according to the old covenant law. That symbolism has been changed. No longer is it about deliverance from Egypt, but now it's about the death of the cross and how that Jesus delivered us from the wrath of God at the cross. Now I want you to take note again that this was a transformation, not transubstantiation. And that means that Jesus did not change the bread into his literal flesh. He did not change the wine into his literal blood. The disciples weren't eating his body and his flesh. Literally, there is no supernatural transformation that takes place. Now, let's continue the study today. Uh, we discussed the bread that's mentioned in verse 26, and the bread represents the body of Christ, and that was certainly a transformation of the symbolism. The disciples had never heard anything like this before. And so when Jesus gave them the unleavened bread, he gave it a new meaning, and that is that his body was sacrificed for us. Now let's note secondly today the appreciation of providence. Verse number 27, and he took the cup and gave thanks. A couple of weeks ago we celebrated the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, in the past I've talked a little bit about revisionist history and how that the historians retell the story of Thanksgiving in a way that they can eliminate God. And in some of our secular history books and that are used in the public schools, they say nothing at all about the pilgrims' deeply held religious beliefs, which were actually the very basis of their government. And rather, the history books say that the pilgrims gathered to give thanks to the Indians rather than thanks to God. And so there are many children that grow up and never hear at all about this, about the pilgrims and as far as the, the, that they're a hearty group of, of God-fearing Christians and that the first Thanksgiving was not about giving thanks to Indians but giving thanks to God who is the provider and the sustainer and the one that helped them to get through those first years of, of their life in this country. And then I would also remind you of this, that God had a plan for America. Now, although the pilgrims sometimes supported God's plan in an erroneous way, it was still God's plan that it would become the greatest nation upon the earth for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you might ask me, how do you know that that is God's plan? And I'll say it was God's plan because it happened. 
It certainly wasn't man's plan for that to happen. It's not Satan's plan for it to happen. And so obviously it has to be God that's behind this. We have become the greatest nation that there is, or in the past at least we had been, the greatest nation for the preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, if you're, you're here today, what you ought to do is you ought to thank God that you can sit in this church and you can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached and you have no fear that someone is going to come in and kill you. You don't have to go hide in a cave somewhere to hear about Jesus. No, this is God's plan. To give us a place where we can hear the gospel preached. So all Christians know this, I think, that we are to thank God at every meal. We ought to thank God for the provision that he's given. And I know there are some who think, well, why should I thank God? I earned the money. I'm the one that buys the food, so the one who should be thanked is me. And in this thankless society, that's the way a lot of people think. But the ability to buy food... And the fact that there's any food to begin with that you can buy, all is because of God. God's the one who gave you a job. God's the one who gives you health. He's the one that sends the rain to grow the crops. He makes the seed burst forth from the ground. And you ought to thank God even more that he does that despite so many that reject him. He's still benevolent and he still sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Well, here in our text, it says that Jesus took the cup and gave thanks. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about what that cup represents. And let's see if you don't marvel at this, that Jesus would give thanks. Now, as we think about that, sometimes the Lord's Supper is called the Eucharist. And don't think that that's just a real too high churchy word for us to use. Because the word Eucharist is actually found in this text. The, the Greek word for thanks here is Eucharisto. And it's transliterated into the English word Eucharist. That's the giving of thanks. So there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we do believe that the Lord's Supper is a time of thanksgiving. To thank the Lord for what he's done for us. And in a very solemn picture, the Lord's Supper shows us that Jesus went to the cross and he gave his life for us. But the puzzling thing about it is that Christ himself would give thanks at this time. We know why we would do it, but why would Jesus give thanks? Well, we have to see the cup. And we get a little bit of insight into what that cup is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, you could skip a little bit ahead to verse number 39. You can read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane talking about the cup. And we're going to discuss that at length at a later time. But that cup represents the degradation of sin. That Christ was going to immerse himself in the sins of man. And that immersion would cause him separation from his father. It would cause his father to pour out on him his unmitigated wrath. And Jesus would go through a baptism of hell on the cross. And through that, he would pay the deliverance, the price of deliverance from the guilt of sin. And so why would Jesus thank God knowing what would happen to him? Knowing what the cross was going to be? Well, he gave thanks because he was always compliant with the Father's will. It was God's will that he should go to the cross. And God's will was always his highest priority. Hebrews reflects this in chapter 10, verse number 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, 
but a body thou hast prepared me. In the seventh verse, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. In verse number nine, then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. And you might well note the last sentence there, verse number 9. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. And you can plug the Lord's Supper into that if you want. Because he took away the Passover, which was the old covenant law of sacrifice, and he replaced that with the new covenant, which is his death on the cross for sin. And we'll return to that thought in just a minute. So God's will was Christ's highest priority. It satisfied him to do God's will. In Isaiah 53 verse 11 it says, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Christ gave thanks because he did the Father's will and by his obedience he was able to purchase a people for himself that would be to the praise of his glory. Now, I'm not going to go into this part now, but we could never believe that Christ's death did not accomplish everything that it was intended to do. He didn't, he didn't just hypothetically purchase redemption. There is no one for whom redemption is purchased that will fail of the grace of God. So he gave thanks for the cup. And then he handed that cup to his disciples. He appreciated the providence of God. He appreciated the food that was given. But more importantly, what he appreciated is that he was the one selected in the divine plan to pay the redemption price for lost sinners. Now that's, that's a marvelous act. When you think about that, what, what an act that is that you know that you're about to go through the most horrible pain that's possible through a, a, a death that's incomprehensible to man not just thinking about having nails driven into your hands and your feet but to know that the full wrath of God was poured out on him the pain and suffering was an infinite thing with Jesus Christ and so because of that you not only ought to give thanks to him but you also ought to give him everything that you are. Now, just as an aside, let me briefly explain this phrase, drink ye all of it. And when I was first saved, I didn't really understand the scriptures very well. I was saved when I was seven years old, and of course I knew all the common Bible stories that we tell to children, but I didn't really understand the theological things that were behind all of those stories. I watched my dad, my, my dad was a pastor, and I watched him go through Lord's Supper observances, and, and I learned some of my idiosyncrasies for the way that I do it from him. And many times I heard him repeat these words, drink ye all of it. And I didn't really understand what that meant, and so I approached it with this idea, bottoms up. That the thing that I was supposed to do was to drink every single drop that was in that, little, that cup. And so what I would do is I would uh, make sure that I got it all. So I'd stick my tongue in that cup and just kind of, you know, go around the, around the little glass with that to make sure I got all of it. So, you know, I was sincere about that. Sincere in what I did, but that's not what Jesus meant when he said, drink ye all of it. What he meant was for all of you to partake of it. 
that all of the disciples were to be in fellowship with Christ, in fellowship with his sufferings, and by all of them taking the cup meant that they were appreciative and they would join in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, which in fact they later would do. So that cup was for everyone that Jesus Christ died for. Each of us has the blood of Christ that is a covering for our sins. And he commands us to drink because all of us have been made partakers of Christ's offering by faith. But there was one disciple who didn't partake of it. If you go back to verse number 25, Jesus identified Judas as the traitor. And by reading other gospels, we can discern that Judas went out that he went to set up the betrayal in the garden, so he wasn't there for verses 26 and 27. And so he didn't eat of the bread, and nor did he drink of that cup. There wasn't any faith in him, and so there was no provision for him. Now you mark this well, that if you don't have faith in Christ and in him alone, there is no provision in the sacrifice for you. There is no provision of eternal life. There is no atonement for you. There is no protection from an eternal hell for you. You can't participate. And Judas could not participate. Now another point that I want to show you, when Jesus said for all of them to drink of it, that he didn't mean for them to drink every drop, is that Jesus did not refill the cup. And I suppose that we could make a a little bit of a point here that the sacrifice of Christ never needed to be repeated. That this is a once-for-all sacrifice. And so we certainly don't have to sacrifice Christ again in a weekly mass. There was one cup that they drank from. And so if one had drunk at all, then there wouldn't have been any for the others to drink. And so what they did was they took a sip out of the cup and then they passed it on. Now let me make a small point here, and uh, this may or may not be an interesting little factoid for you, but when I was uh, also, when I was a very young child, that that is the way that our church took the cup. There was one cup for the entire congregation. Now we lived in a simpler time back then, and uh, I'm not as old as Van Leeuwenhoek who discovered microbes. But we didn't really care a whole lot about germs. We weren't concerned about that. And so when we take the supper today, you notice that as I'm standing here behind the table, that the first thing that I do is I wash my hands. And what I do is I've shaken hands with all of you. And so I don't want to transfer what you have on your hands, and I don't know where they've been, and I don't want to transfer all you have on your hands to the bread that I give everybody, so I, I wash my hands. I don't want to transfer all your sneezes and all of that to the bread. Well, we had just one cup back then in our little country church, and everybody drank from this one cup. Well, here, here's the notation that I want to make about it, that most of the people that were in the church were farmers, We were in Kentucky, and guess what people in Kentucky back then grew? They grew tobacco. And so very, very many people in the church grew tobacco, and a lot of them were smokers, and worse, there were many of them that chewed tobacco. Now, there isn't anything as disgusting as chewing tobacco, especially if you have to drink after somebody who's been chewing tobacco. And this wasn't just the men that we're talking about. It was the ladies as well. The ladies also chewed tobacco. Now, I, I've never chewed this stuff. But I've watched plenty of people who did. 
And I know that when you chew, you have to spit. Well, we had this uh, old potbelly stove that sat in the middle of our country church. And in the middle of church, while the preaching was going on, every now and then you would hear... <laughs> and that was... They're spitting on the stove and it sizzles when they did that. My Sunday school teacher that I remember very well, I, I love this lady. Uh, she was a really nice lady, but she was a tobacco chewer. And she was a big lady. And I remember that when she chewed, that she'd have to spit and she'd do this. She'd pull out her dress at the front and she'd spit down the front. I didn't know what was down there and I didn't want to find out. But that's, that was really a disgusting thing. Now, all of that's, all of that's pretty gross. And you kind of get the sense of, of, of why that my dad did a lot of preaching against growing tobacco and using tobacco in any form. But the point that I want to make about this is that all of the members drank from the same cup. And so if you had any sense, what you would want to do is you want to sit right next to the communion table to get the first drink. And God forbid if, the, if Dad started the cup at the back of the church, then you're in real trouble. So what you had to do, if, if, if you couldn't be first, then the best that you could do was just rotate the cup a little bit and hope that you didn't put your mouth in the same place that, that the tobacco chewers did. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not in favor of backwash. And so what I'm, what I'm glad for is, and I don't think the Lord is, is upset about this, and, but I'm glad that he lets us use communion cups. And uh, we can each have our own individual cup and you never have to worry about anything like that. So I don't think the Lord is upset because we have 100 people instead of 12 that are going to drink from the cup. Well, let me move on from that point. Uh, sermons are a lot of fun, aren't they? <laughs> number three, number three today is the ratification of the covenant. Now, verse number 28 says, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, the word testament means covenant, and a covenant is an agreement. And Jesus is saying here that there is a new covenant or there is a new agreement. And, of course, that would stand in contrast to the old covenant, the old agreement, or what we call the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, contracts, agreements, covenants were ratified with blood. If, if two parties agreed on a covenant, then that covenant was, a stamped with, was stamped with approval by blood. Now, notice something about this old covenant. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 24. And here we find Moses standing between God and the people to enact a covenant between them. Moses built an altar. He sacrificed on that altar. And he took the blood of animals and he collected their blood into basins. And we notice here in verse number 6 of Exodus chapter 24, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said will we do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of a covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Now there we see that the covenant was ratified with blood. That's the old covenant. And you'll notice here that the people said, All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. Now that old covenant was based upon conditional promises. God said, 
that if you will obey me and you will do this, then this is what I'll do for you. Now, the thing that the Israelites wanted the most was they wanted to get into Canaan. They wanted to be prosperous. They wanted to serve God. They wanted to have their needs met. And God said, okay, if you will do that, then, then if you'll obey me, that's, that's what I'll do. I'll bless you and I'll, I'll take care of you in the land. Well, we know what happened. They didn't obey. And disobedience caused them to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. They didn't obey. And so God's promise was delayed until the time that they did obey. That's the old covenant. It was conditioned upon the obedience of Israel. Now here in the Lord's Supper, the Lord said, I am going to make a new covenant. And this new covenant is not conditioned upon our obedience. It's conditioned upon Christ's obedience. It's a covenant with better promises because this is a covenant that's always guaranteed to be fulfilled. Why? Because Christ is perfect. He's the only one that could ever keep God's law perfectly and thus he ensures that the promise can never fail. And that's why that we're so thankful for what Jesus did at the cross. And this is the very reason that you could never lose your salvation when you trust in him because when you trust in Christ, you're actually trusting his obedience. Your salvation is never dependent upon how well that you can obey. You're never going to meet God's standard. You can never live to it. And so what Christ did is to keep the standard for you. It's Christ's perfect obedience that is your assurance. And this new covenant will protect, will protect you forever. As long as you live, as long as Christ lives, you will be protected. And Christ lives forever. Now I'd like you to turn your Bible to Jeremiah 31. And here we can read the promise of a new covenant that was given while that old covenant was still in effect. Do you ever wonder, can you see Christ in the Old Testament? Well, here's one of the places where you can see Christ. Now, that old covenant that they kept was excruciatingly hard, and that's witnessed by Israel's constant failure to keep it. And so this is what God says through Jeremiah the prophet. In Jeremiah 31, beginning at verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And that's what we just read about a moment ago in Exodus. Not, it says, not according to that, but he says, which my covenant they break and they did, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law into their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Now, that is regeneration. That is God putting it in the heart of man to follow him, which thing that he will never do unless God does this. And then he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Well, God knew that Israel would never be able to keep that covenant, that old covenant, to eternal life. They were always going to miserably fail. And so he promised that there would be a new covenant and it wouldn't be predicated upon Israel's obedience, but on his own through Jesus Christ. 
Now here's the effect of that, is that God is the one who keeps his own covenant. This is not a bilateral covenant. It's a unilateral covenant. That means that there's only one party to it. This is not two parties. It's not you and God. This is God. It's a unilateral covenant. And so, if God is the one who makes the covenant, and the only one who can fail in the covenant is God, what do you think is going to happen? The covenant is never going to fail. Because God never fails. That's a great truth, isn't it? It's, it's brought out here in the Bible for us. So salvation itself is a unilateral process that only God can fulfill. Only God can make it work. And the covenant is actually between God and God. That is God the Son, God the Father, and God the Son. Now by the way, we call that the eternal covenant of redemption. And interestingly, the ratification of this covenant is still blood. Only this time, the blood is the blood of Jesus. Jesus ratified the covenant with his own blood when he died on the cross. Now, he lived that life perfectly. He kept all of God's laws perfectly. He bled on the cross and he sealed the covenant. And so when he spoke his last words, it is finished that covenant was settled. And that's why we never need another Passover lamb. The Passover lamb is a part of the old covenant. But the sacrifice of Christ is the new covenant. And who wants the old when the new is so far superior? Now, go back to Hebrews chapter 10. I want, to take, I want you to look at this in your Bibles this time. And we're going to see how this played out. There are some of these verses that I skipped just a moment ago. And and so what we're going to do now is fill in the missing pieces. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. It supersedes the old. It takes away the old. So in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 5, it says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hadst no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come, to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which will... We are sanctified through the body of the offering, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, do you see what God says here? He was not content to take away sins by the blood of Old Testament sacrifices. Now, thousands of them were made. All of them were made according to the Old Covenant law. But God's law was never intended to save anyone. You're never going to be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. It wasn't designed for that. The law is designed for one thing, one glaring factor that shows out, and that is that we are sinners. The law demonstrates how far that we fall short. And so what Jesus had to do was to step in and take away that first covenant to give us a new covenant. He took away the first in order to establish the second. And the second is exceedingly better... And that's demonstrated in verse 10 because it says we are sanctified by the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
And then while you're there in Hebrews, if you just look back a page or so to the 8th chapter, and in verse number 6, it says, But now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And here's the better promise. The better promise is that Christ will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Now, nobody needs to make an animal sacrifice today. Christ is the once-for-all sacrifice. That was the sacrifice of himself. Now, folks, what I'm telling you, what I've been talking about here is all of this information is behind what's said in Matthew 26, 28. So why do we, would we ever want to hold on to the Last Supper when it's so far inferior to the First Supper? Now, the last part of verse 28 gives us the fourth point, and that is the remission of sins. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, going back to Hebrews, if you still have it open, in the seventh verse of that eighth chapter, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So if the first covenant was faultless, then there is no need to have a second. If the first covenant is faultless, then we'd still be making sacrifices today. If that covenant was faultless, then Christ would have never graced this life in human flesh. If it were faultless, instead of breaking bread and pouring the cup, there would be a lamb down here on the table in front of us every time that we came to take the supper. We would see a lamb there. And really, that's, that's a problem because there, 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 there is no longer a temple. And where you would have to go is to the temple. There's no longer a temple. The Jews can't even celebrate Passover rightly because there is no temple. There aren't any priests. There isn't any place to make their sacrifice. And so if that temple was still standing, what you would have to do is that you would have to go and you would go to Jerusalem and there you would see a lamb with its throat slit and with blood pouring out of that lamb and being collected into basins. And folks, I'm telling you that I would rather chew tobacco than to do that. I don't want to be sacrificing lambs. And on top of that, there would be a picket line outside the church and PETA would be all over us. No, the first covenant was not perfect because all of the blood of lambs and bulls and goats and oxen, none of that could take away even the first sin of any person, much less millions of sins of billions of people across the planet in the history of the world. Jesus had to do this. So there's a huge problem with the first covenant. There is no forgiveness of sins in it. Now, what the word remission means is deliverance. It means deliverance and freedom. And so the, the lamb, the Passover lamb, granted freedom from, from, for Israel from Egypt. And all of that's carried over into the New Testament. And now we're granted freedom from sin, which is our forgiveness. We're granted forgiveness. We're released from the guilt of sin by the blood of Christ. And so there's a great deal of significance in this. And to these words, my blood which is shed for many. Next week that's going to be our subject. We're going to talk some about that. But as we end today, let me just, let me just talk to you for just a moment about Jesus' blood. What does the Bible mean when it says that the blood is for the forgiveness of our sins? Is the blood of Jesus some special kind of blood 
That if you were to get a drop of his blood on you, that some way, some miracle would happen? Well, that's what some people teach. They teach that the blood of Christ was divine blood. And they believe that there were some special qualities that were in his blood that were different. These qualities are different from yours and mine. Well, is that true? The theory that's proposed is called the divine blood theory. And they say that Christ's blood was the blood of God. And that when Jesus died on the cross, it was the blood of God that he shed. And that it had special properties in it that somehow spiritually applied, this blood will wash your sins away. Now we do sing songs like, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, does that mean that there was a chemical difference in Christ's blood and in, that's different from ours? Well, the answer to that has to be no. Why? Because the Bible teaches that Jesus was completely human. That in his body flowed the blood of man. The Bible says that he was made in every way just like we are. And so if he had a different kind of blood, then he wasn't 100% man. And then secondly, God is a spirit. There isn't any such thing as divine blood because spirits don't have flesh and blood. And so the blood that flowed in the veins of Christ was blood just like yours and mine. So, what are we to make of the passages of Scripture that say things like Peter said, that we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ? Well, the only answer that we can give to that is that his blood stands for his death. That the shedding of blood means that Christ died, and it's only through his death that we can be saved. Oh, his blood must be shed. He must die and the blood be shed in order that his blood could be poured out for the ratification of the covenant. That's what his blood was shed for. So he couldn't die of a heart attack. He couldn't die by being hit by a bus or in his case a chariot or wagon. He can't die that way. No, when the Bible says that Christ shed his blood, his blood is a metaphor for his death. That we are released by his blood, we are washed in his blood as he fulfilled the sacrificial requirement of death. And so forgiveness of sins is purchased at the price of blood, which means that Christ's death is the only thing that satisfies God. The life is in the blood. And so when the blood is poured out, when it's shed, death comes. Now what we have to be very careful about in our zeal is that we don't turn Christ's blood into something that is mystical, not as the Roman Catholics do in the Mass, where they manipulate it, and they say that they have changed the, the, the wine into blood. And so in order to be real partakers of Christ, that you must actually drink of his blood. Now look, look again at verse number 27. It says he took the cup. And obviously in that cup was juice that represented blood. And what do we say about the cup? Well, it represents the horrors of crucifixion. It represents the dregs of sin that were drunk down by Christ. It represents the suffering of hell on the cross. It represents Christ giving his life. And so that juice in the cup is a graphic symbolism that life has been forfeited. And so that's how we receive the forgiveness of sin. Life has been forfeited. And this life was the most precious life that ever graced this world. It was snuffed out, and by his death, that's the only way that we could be saved. Now, the Lord's death, is a, Lord's Supper is a beautiful emblem, rich in symbolism. And what you must do 
It's trust the Lord of the supper, not the supper itself. You trust the real thing, not the symbol. Well, folks, Christ was God and he was man. He was the perfect man who gave his life in the unilateral promise of God. And it's by the blood of that cross that the promise is ratified. The death of Jesus Christ ratifies the covenant that God has made with himself that he'll save you and he'll save you forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now so grateful for what Jesus did at the cross. Lord, help us to look to that great sacrifice that he made and to understand that this was done for unworthy sinners. We had no right to come to you. We were against you. We were hostile against you. And yet in your marvelous mercy and your grace, you sent Jesus to die for us. I pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of some lost sinner today. Help them to understand what Christ has done. And without him, there is no hope for eternal life. Lord, bless us today as we sing. Speak your word to our hearts. Make it effectual in people's hearts today that they might come to you. And then as Christians, I do pray, Lord, that because we've heard about the cross again today and the great sacrifice that Jesus made, that we would be forever grateful for what you've done and that we would give our all to you. Bless us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.